basketball team for winning the goldenrod and for the girls doing a great job as runner-ups. So just a kind of a congratulations there. This morning, we have back uh, Pastor Zeke Pfeiffer. Pastor Zeke is Heartland Church here in town. So let's welcome back Pastor Zeke. Morning. When, uh, when my wife and I lived in Los Angeles, California, this was years ago. So this is before we had any kids. And I was going to seminary, and she was working uh, for the school. And life was just pretty simple. Uh, when we weren't working or studying, uh, a lot of times we were going out for coffee. Uh, I would be uh, hanging out with friends, usually playing like Settlers of Catan. I don't know if you've played that game before, but that was the big one. And, uh, you know, that's just what we did. And there was one afternoon that uh, a few of us planned to get together toward the end of the day and just play as many rounds of Settlers as we could throughout the evening. And right before that happened, uh, the friend's house, the place where we were going to play, uh, he was the director of resident life at Biola. And he was making the rounds, and he got to one of his uh, residents, and they opened the door, and he saw a little kitty, a little cat, that the resident apparently had been out. Here's how the legend goes, right? Uh, out uh, and about in Los Angeles, and this tiny little kitty uh, was on the streets of L.A. And he took it in, but you can't have pets in the dorms. And so my friend Drew, uh, when he saw the kitty, he said, man, sorry, I got I to gotta take that. You can't have pets. So Drew brought it back to his place, and then shortly after that, we all arrived to play Settlers of Catan. And Drew said, yeah, don't mind the kitty unless anyone wants it. And nobody said we wanted it. And so we just sat down and started putting the board together for Settlers. And I had showed up with an Americano from Starbucks. And I you know, drank most of it, but sat it down. About a third was left in the cup. And at one point, we're, we're in the middle of a game, and I hear this like lapping noise. And I look backwards, and this tiny little scrawny kitty has her face all the way down in my cup, and she's drinking coffee. And I just declare it. I say, hey, if that kitty is going to drink coffee with me, I'll take it home. And I know you're thinking, my poor wife, that is truly how a lot of decisions get made in our home. So uh, I did. I took this cat home. We named it Butterscotch. Uh, she lived with us for about 20 years, uh, which I think is a fairly full life. And here's the deal. We gave her everything. Like she started out this scrawny little malnourished kitty on the streets of L.A., uh, in my mind, competing with rats for like scraps of food, right? And we took her in and we gave her everything. Like we, we fed her the best cat food. Uh, she had free reign of the house. She could, she could sleep on the couches, the most comfortable place she, she could find. Uh, no longer did she have to battle the rains and the weather of L.A., uh, she got to live 20 years between 69 and 71 degrees at all times in our house. And uh, I'm telling you, butterscotch wanted for nothing. Actually, the more accurate way to say that would be butterscotch should have wanted for nothing. But here's the unique thing about this cat is, honestly, the more we gave her, 
the more she acted like she was owed it. I'm not joking. We were so good to her, and we gave her so much, but every little thing that we did for her, it's like she took it, received it, thought about it, and she, she wanted more. Uh, you know, so you put out the best can of cat food, you know, the, the highest quality, you know, all natural ingredients, and she'd walk up and she'd be like, oh, chicken, huh? I like tuna. And then walk away as if she's like saying, come on, people, you can do better than this. So it's like the more we gave her, the more she felt entitled to it, the more she wanted. And uh, anyway, it struck me this week, I was studying our passage. And I, and it just struck me that I'm not sure that we as people are all that different. Uh, in fact, as we look at our, our passage, you're going to see uh, some people that uh, butterscotch. See what I did there? I turned a name into a verb. So uh, turn with me, if you haven't turned yet, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And we're going to start in verse 32. You've been going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, so you know that by this point, Jesus uh, is on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, he has set his face to Jerusalem, and that is a statement that is communicating to us that, that he is on a mission, he is intent about where he is going, um, and, and this is actually, this passage here, Mark's, Mark 10.32, this is the third time now in Mark's gospel where Jesus shares with his disciples what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, only this time, because it's closer, I believe, he shares way more details about what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, look at 32 through 34. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. If you look at that statement in verse 32, it says Jesus is walking ahead of them. And then it says, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. You've probably come to realize that in Mark's gospel, compared to the other three, Mark's really short. Uh, he's really quick. He gets to the point right away. And it kind of gives that sense that like, even a statement like that is carrying a lot of meaning. Uh, a statement like that, that they were afraid, uh, they were shocked. What Mark is showing us is that these disciples are watching Jesus uh, move toward Jerusalem, and they are actually shocked and afraid by how intent he is on getting there. And it's not hard to understand why they're shocked and why they're afraid. This is now the third time that he's told them here's what's going to happen when we get there. Uh, I'm going to be arrested. Uh, I'm going to be brought up on charges. I'm going to be condemned, handed to Gentiles, and they're going to brutally execute me. And these disciples know that, 
But yet Jesus isn't shuffling his feet, right? He's not, he's not kind of dragging his feet and shuffling along as if, you know, he's afraid of what's to come. I think they're amazed and they're shocked by, by how willingly Jesus is marching on toward the cross and the grave and the resurrection. Um, I got to thinking about just the people in this scene who are with Jesus. And, and what an amazing privilege it is for them to be a part of this moment with Jesus, uh, where he is on the way to the cross. Uh, he is sharing with them very in detail, very personally, what he's going to go through. Um, these, these disciples are incredibly privileged. I mean, they have been given... Think with me for just a moment, just about some of the gifts that, that Jesus has given these 12 disciples. Um, of all the people, literally of all the people who have ever lived in history, these are the 12 that God sovereignly chose to give the gift of walking with the Word of God made flesh. So millions of people before these 12. Millions of people after these 12. These are the 12 men that God, in his sovereignty, chose to give this gift of walking with the Son of God during his earthly ministry. So these 12 were given the gift of, they got to hear God talk every day, right? They got to watch God in action uh, every day through the things that Jesus did. They were given insider instruction. Uh, when Jesus taught in parables, it would be this 12 that Jesus would turn to and he would say, okay, this is what that means. Or if he did a miracle and there was more to explain about the miracle, it would be these 12 that Jesus would turn to and he would say, this is why I did that. Or this is the meaning of what, just, what you just saw. Um, one of the most awesome gifts that, that God gave to three of these people, right, is the chance to witness the transfiguration. Uh, you guys studied that back in Mark chapter 9, um, where they saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Uh, that was an incredible gift that God gave to the disciples. Not, not even, I mean, what becomes more overwhelming is when you realize the fact that these men are like all men, right? Like they are still unholy sinners, like us. I mean, these men, if they got what they deserved, like if we got what we deserved, these men would have had their sins exposed, judged by a holy God, and they would have been immediately removed from the presence of God for all time. So think of one of the gifts that, that God has given these 12 disciples, in that rather than that, God allowed them to live in the presence of God, the presence of the Son of God, every day during Jesus' earthly ministry. The gifts that God has given these men are, are unbelievable. And then in our passage that we just read, uh, with what Jesus, you know, he pulls the twelve aside, right, and he teaches them, what I would say about that is that Jesus also gave these men the gift of warning, uh, the gift of telling them, hey, listen, I, the best that I can do in this moment with, with letting you know what's to come, I, I don't want you to be 
more shocked than you will be. Um, he warns them that you've seen hard things happen. You've seen great things happen. The hardest is yet to come. It's going to happen soon. Um, the way this reads, what we just read, uh, it really reads like Jesus is talking to friends, like he's talking to people he loves, uh, as if he's inviting them. Hey, I want this is going to be hard. This is what I'm going to go through. You're going to be with me. I want you to be with me. And so I want to tell you exactly what's about to happen. And again, I would go so far as to say the specificity in what Jesus says to these men is a gift. Like he's incredibly detailed, isn't he? He says, uh, he describes how he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to put him through an unrighteous trial. They're going to find him guilty. Uh, they're going to sentence him to death. But then they're going to have to hand him over to the Gentiles to actually carry out that execution. Um, he even goes on to explain very specifically how that execution is going to happen and that he's going to rise from the dead. Look at verse 34 again. He says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. The specific details Jesus shares with these men, they're all gifts. These men have been lavished with gift after gift after gift after gift from God. Uh, you think I was good to butterscotch. Uh, God, through the Son, has been so good to these men. All that to say, uh, listen to them butterscotch here, okay? Listen to how they respond to what Jesus teaches. Look at 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, uh, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. Again, this is what I love about Mark. Uh, he's quick, he moves, and... And one of the things that we are to see here is that there is not a single verse, there is not a transition of any kind between this incredible, beautiful gospel statement that Jesus just gives these men and then these men coming up to Jesus and saying, we want something, we want more, we want privilege, we want honor. There is not a single verse between those two things happening. And by the way, and we'll see this in a second as we keep reading, all the disciples are implicated in this moment. It, it was James and John that made this request. But you're going to see here when we read this that all the disciples get mad. And they're mad because, wait a second, we, we want that. They just beat us to the question. So right after this beautiful statement of the gospel, right, like what Jesus is going to go through, the disciples come back and they say, we want more. We're entitled to more. Then, by the way, uh, we'll just finish the passage here. We'll read this together. Jesus, as, an, as another gift, right, as an act of grace and mercy, actually explains more and shares more about the gospel. Um, we'll pick it up. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Mark, uh, very intentionally, shows us how Jesus explains to the disciples the gospel, explains in great detail what's going to happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He's going to go through his own exodus. He's going to go through the cross, the grave, the resurrection, and the ascension, the return to his father. So we have Mark showing us that Jesus is giving them this beautiful gift of details about the gospel, about him and his work. And then we have immediately Mark adding in this this. I wouldn't even call it a request, this demand for privilege from the disciples. And then we have immediately out of that, uh, Mark shares how Jesus goes deeper into the gospel. He talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about um, things are not uh, the same in heaven as they are on earth. And, And we have this incredible gospel statement again that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, in a sense, one way to see this passage is we have a beautiful statement of the gospel, a sinful response, a prideful response, and we have a beautiful statement of the gospel. And, and what, why, do we, why do we have that? Why did Mark do that? Uh, he could have just included all this teaching from Jesus that would, would still have all the richness and the beauties of the gospel. Why did he tuck into the middle of that, this episode with the disciples asking for more, for for privilege? Well, we're going to answer that before we before we look at the answer to that. Let me let me say what it's not, what the wrong answer uh, is. Uh, Mark did not put this moment with the disciples into the passage so that we would say together this morning, "Are you kidding me, guys? You don't get this by now." Like, how could, you, how could you think such a thing? Like, how could you do such a thing? You've walked with Jesus. You should know so much more by now. He didn't put it in there for that reason. And the reason I even say that is because I think sometimes that's our instinct with these moments. Uh, because we have that privilege of being able to read, and, and we've heard this passage preached, and we, we read these disciples. And I think sometimes all we do with that is we just think, oh, those foolish disciples right? Like, how could they do that? 
But that's not why Mark put that in there. Um, I would say there's a couple reasons that Mark uh, links these two, uh, puts these two together. And it's always good to ask this question of the Gospels. Uh, when a moment is linked with a teaching or a teaching is linked with a parable, it's good to ask the question, why did he do that? Um, one reason uh, that Mark did this, I believe, uh, is that gives us a chance to see that the disciples, again, we just talked about them, right? Like these are the ones that Jesus chose to walk with him, the ones that Jesus chose to be friends and to, and to really privilege with all of this insider information. These disciples, even though they're the ones, still desperately need everything to happen that Jesus, Jesus just told them would happen, right? Like, they are still sinners. They're privileged, and this is, this is a great statement about us as people. They're privileged, like they've been given good gifts by God, um, but yet that doesn't, that doesn't translate into, oh, now before God, I must be righteous. I must merit some of this. Uh, I must deserve some of this favor. And so I think we're seeing in this moment that even the disciples who were, uh, were so important to Jesus and, and the early church, obviously, uh, they still needed uh, Jesus to go to Jerusalem, uh, to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, to be falsely accused, to be falsely condemned to die, to be handed to the Gentiles, and to go through the cross. These disciples desperately needed the gospel. And, and they desperately needed Jesus to be a different kind of ruler than the rulers in this world that they were, just, they were about to see in full force, right? Rome's greatest lure, uh, rulers, uh, Israel's greatest rulers. They needed Jesus to display greatness and show his greatness by being a servant to all, right? By being a slave to all, by accomplishing salvation uh, for them. And I, that's why Mark puts this in there, I believe, in one, in one sense, is so that we'd see that even those who are privileged with walking with God, we still at all, all times need the work of the gospel that Jesus did for us. But there's another reason, I think, uh, and, it, and it's connected, but the second reason I think these things are back-to-back, -back, and Mark does that intentionally, I think this is very personal uh, for us. One of the gifts that God gives to us uh, in the Scriptures uh, are the human actors, right? Like the people that are walking with Jesus, they're responding to Jesus, interacting with him. I think it's a gift that God gives to us to be able to read about the disciples like this. And here's why. The assumption of the scriptures uh, is that when we read about the disciples in a moment like this, it's not that we would say, oh, come on, guys, you're, 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 you're too dense. Uh, I would never do that. No, the assumption of the scriptures is we read about the disciples and their response, and we say things like, oh, man, I would have done that, right? Like, I, 
I still do things like this. And, 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 and then we get to see like the response, the grace and the mercy and the teaching, and we get to identify with that too. Um, I, think, I think this is a gift from God that Mark links together so we can see these disciples and we can say, man, I, I do this all the time, right? Like if I'll slow down and think about all that God has given me and, and done for me that I don't deserve and how often in life, right, I completely forget about all that stuff and only fixate on something God's not doing for me, right? Something that in my definition of God and goodness, he would do for me if he was truly good. I'm not embarrassed to admit this. Um, I catch myself at this all the time. I probably should catch myself at it more. Uh, I'll share one. This was, this was year, right after seminary. Uh, we were offered a position uh, in Ames, Iowa, with a EFCA church there, to start up a college ministry. And so we went to Ames, Iowa, and, and did some work in the summer, and kind of did this big launch in the fall. And the very first week, we had like 350, 400 students show up. And I'm like, this is great. This is what I was picturing. And then the next week, we had like 60 people show up. And it's like everybody from all these other college ministries showed up the first week to see who this new kid was. And then they got enough of the new kid. He's not that flashy. They went back to their college ministries. And you know what I did? I got mopey. I did. I got discouraged. I started pouting. I just kind of walked around with my head hung low for uh, a couple weeks. And I just, honestly, I just kind of felt like, oh, man, this is not... This is not how it's supposed to go, right? I, I want this to be bigger. I, in that time, a, a good friend of mine, a, a brother in Christ, called me, and I was kind of being mopey and sharing these things, and oh, I expected it to be bigger. And, and, and he said, well, can I, can I remind you of a few things? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. He goes, can I, can I remind you that when you were 19... And you would live the first 19 of your years of your life in absolute sinful rebellion against God, mocked Christians, uh, did everything your way, nothing God's way. Can I remind you that at 19, the Lord in his grace and his mercy sent a couple uh, college guys that you liked, that you were friends with, to your dorm room one day to share the gospel and introduce Jesus to you. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, he did that. And he said, and can I remind you that right after uh, Jesus uh, entered your life and changed your life, um, the pastor of the church you were going to reached out to you and said, hey, I know you're new at uh, the Christian life. I want to meet with you every week, and I, I just want to teach you how to walk with Jesus, how to be a godly man. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened too. And, and can I remind you that right out of college, uh, you met a woman who would become your wife and is still to this day the person that you know who loves Jesus the most. Talking about Jamie. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, he did that too. And he said, can I remind you that at that point that you guys got married and you were both serving the church and you loved the church, how you had numerous people come to you and say, I really feel like you, you guys should go to ministry, and that when you made the decision to go to ministry, that, that a number of people in the church 
without being asked, contributed to the, the seminary expenses so that you could graduate debt-free. I'm like, yeah, yeah, he did that too. He said, can I remind you that when you were getting close to graduating, a church from Iowa tracked you down in California, flew a group out there, and asked if you would come back and start up a college ministry, a great church, healthy church in a great place. I'm like, yeah, yeah, he did that too. And he said, while we're going on this, can I remind you that no matter what happens with the college ministry, whether this thing's a complete flop and you've got one student after four or five years of serving Christ with everything you got, that you still have Christ. You still have eternity. You still have the love of God that will never be separated from you because of what Jesus did uh, in his work in the, on the cross, the grave, and his resurrection. Can I remind you that no matter what you do or don't do in life, you will always have Christ. I'm like, yeah. And just running me through these series of questions just pulled me up out of this moment where I had completely forgotten the, the immeasurable good gifts of God, and I was just fixated on one thing that I wanted, and I was back to being able to just say, God, you are so good to me, and I don't deserve any of it. Do you guys have a friend like that? Are you a friend like that? Just a side question, like, do you have a friend that will come to you when they see you a little bit mopey and, hey, I didn't get that that I wanted or I didn't get to do this that I wanted? Do you have a friend that will come to you and say, hey, can I remind you of a few things? You know, are you that kind of friend? Man, I hope so. I, I really do. Uh, this friend has stayed a friend over the last, well, we've been friends now for about 30 years. And we've done this for each other a few times. Uh, back and forth, and it's a beautiful thing. Mark gives us both these pictures, I believe, uh, so that we can identify with the disciples. Uh, we can be reminded once again that everything about the Christian life, right, everything about being saved, everything about living life as a Christian, everything about it is a gift. And there, there's a right way to receive that gift. And it's by, it's by adoring and trusting and following and obeying the one that gives it to us. And really living in his definition of greatness, right? Uh, of, of servanthood. You know, so that upperclassmen serve lowerclassmen. Uh, teachers serve students. Administration serves everybody, right? Pastors serve each other, the ones that they're shepherding. Um, when you live that life of grace and constant realization of how good God has been to you through the gospel, um, it just gives you the chance to follow in Jesus' uh, form of servanthood, his form of greatness. I think I've gone too long. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for uh, your holy word. Thank you for... Uh, the Holy Spirit directing Mark to uh, record the, the gospel and the specific beautiful truths of the work of Christ, but also giving us a chance to see uh, our sin and, and our need for the gospel uh, through the disciples. 
Help us to be people who walk by grace, who are always aware of how good you've been to us uh, and how we just absolutely don't deserve it. We worship you and we love you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.